John 14, starting at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. I'm going to pray using some of the words from Isaiah 45. Declare what it is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. There is no God apart from me. A righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. We praise you for revealing yourself, Lord God, to the people of Israel and to us and for the unique offer of salvation that you make. Make us grateful, we pray. Strengthen us in our convictions in a world that is pluralistic, relativistic, and intolerant of Christian views. Make us those who hold fast to our Saviour. And we ask that these words in John 14 will be an encouragement to us as well, for your glory's sake. Amen. Isn't Christianity intolerant, arrogant, and bigoted? There are some Christians who are arrogant. There are some Christians who are intolerant. There are some who are bigoted. There are even some who are all three. But their existence, while shameful, does not mean that Christianity is those things. Christianity is Jesus Christ. Christians are merely those who, having been saved by Jesus, are now seeking to align their lives more and more to their saviours, and their character more and more to his character. 
that some of us have a long way to go is undeniable. That we wish we were better ambassadors for Christ than we are is also true. Therefore, our appeal to skeptics or those looking in from the outside is to hold back from judging Christianity, at least to begin with, by the lives of those who claim to follow him. We are not the finished article. We want to ask you to measure Christianity by the person at its core. So the question I want to try and answer is, is Jesus intolerant, arrogant, or bigoted? Most of us, I think, do know what intolerance and arrogance look like, but do you know what a bigot is? Let's start there. Just for a moment, if you were going to explain what is a bigot to the person sitting next to you, what would you say? Go. Okay, I don't want to leave you hanging too long, but that's quite hard, actually, to have a real definition for it. I had to look it up. I know the word is hurled at Christians who dare to speak up in public about their Christian beliefs, especially when those beliefs clash with the reigning culturally accepted norms of the day. To express a Christian conviction, for instance, that all sex is for heterosexually married couples and that it is not God's design for sex to be used outside of that context will get you called a bigot. I thought I knew what the word meant until I tried to write it down, so I struggled. Here's the dictionary definition. A bigot is someone who is proud, self-righteous, ignorant and rude, dismissive and unkind. They have strong, unreasonable beliefs. They do not like other people who have different beliefs or a different way of life. Now, I hope that with that definition in front of us, not many would say that Jesus fits that label. All who've read an account of Jesus' life for themselves as an adult even if they deny his essential claim to be God, would at least want to defend him as an inspired teacher, a loving and compassionate man, a friend of the lowliest and the least, and nothing like a bigot. Now, he may not have been called that, but the claims he made by his life and his words certainly got under the skin of those listening to him. In one famous incident, a paralyzed man was lowered from a roof in front of him on a mat. The crowd was so tight that was the only way they could get him to Jesus. In front of everyone, Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then he said, That you all may know that I have the power to forgive sins. I'm also going to say to this man, Get up and walk. Which he did. And the man did. And that left the religious fanatics at the back fuming. To claim to be able to forgive sins is a claim to be God. To heal a person of paralysis is another very evident claim to be God. So what are they going to do? He can't be God. This must be a trick. Or he must be blaspheming. That's outrageous for a mere human to claim such a thing. We will not believe it. In fact, we will find a way to be rid of him. Now, in that encounter, Jesus' claim appears arrogant, and people might have wanted to call him a bigot. But the evidence given back... Uh, with the miraculous healing of the man, actually turns the tables. Who are the arrogant and the bigoted ones in that story? 
Don't they turn out to be the ones who refuse to believe the evidence in front of them and hold on to an unreasonable belief, even to the extent of wanting to do away with the very person in front of them? How about intolerant? Is that label more sticky? Our culture appeals to tolerance these days almost as its highest value. Close second to freedom. Freedom is paramount, and then tolerance. I need to be happy to be allowing everyone else to believe what they want to believe. So tolerance reigns. So if you say something that restricts my freedom, or if you don't accept as right and good anything I believe, then you are being intolerant. That's what our culture says. But the foundation of those claims is very shallow and very shaky. What happens when the person who values freedom also values his property? Doesn't he have a right to restrict my freedom to walk all over his property, physical or intellectual? And isn't that then restricting my freedom? And what about someone coming along asking if the same person to be tolerant um, of what you believe? They say, of course, I'll tolerate anything you believe. Tolerance is king, isn't it? But then that person goes and ruins it by saying that the one thing you can't say in a society that exalts tolerance is an absolute claim or an exclusive claim. If you make that kind of claim, you rule out other people who believe something else. And that's intolerant and not allowed. So they're caught in this trap. Do you see the irony? While claiming to be champions of tolerance, freedom, many full fall hook, line, and sinker into the intolerant bracket. And what's left if tolerance is king? Well, no one's allowed to say, let alone believe anything that anyone else might find intolerant. And that leaves all religions are the same. They claim the same thing. They're simply different routes up the same mountain or different people touching an elephant, just unable to see the others doing so. Both of those pictures, by the way, while sounding convincingly simple, are actually arrogant and intolerant. How come? Do you know the one about the elephant? Just nod if you do. Few do. Okay. Somebody's standing there holding a thin, wiry, crinkly thing. I've got the elephant. An elephant is like a thin, wiry, crinkly thing. Another person holds a very thick, fat, long, strong thing. I've got the elephant by the trunk. I know what the elephant is like. And the other person is holding an enormous tree trunk-like thing. I've got the elephant. I know what an elephant looks like. And the person standing back from it all, arrogantly in saying so, is I can see all of you. I'm not anywhere near the elephant. You're all touching the same animal. Do you see its arrogance? It's claiming not to be right up against the elephant. It's the same with the mountain. You're all different paths up the same mountain, but I'm arrogantly going to stand back and say, I can see the whole thing. My position isn't a path on the mountain. Well, it's a mess. Let's try and find some clarity in Scripture. More precisely in Jesus, please turn to John 14. Jesus is at dinner with his disciples. After three years of intense ministry together, he's telling them what's about to happen to him. They're having to come to terms with his leaving them. So he says, chapter 14, verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. 
I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I must go to the Father, where there is a place for all of you that is being prepared. I've got stuff to do, but I'm coming back and I'll take you to be with me where I am. Perhaps there were blank faces at that point, wrinkled foreheads, hardly suppressed tears. What? Where? How? This doesn't make sense. So he goes on, verse 4. You know the place where I am going. Thomas is probably not the only one thinking, no, we don't. How can you say we know the way when you're talking about somewhere we've never been? We don't even know where it is you're talking about. The Father's house? What? Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? At least, if you give us a postcode, we can stick it in the GPS. But if you're not even going to give us that, where is it in relation to Nazareth or Jerusalem? Those are the kind of directions the disciples want. Jesus, perhaps with a warm smile and a comforting tone, answered Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are the words straight from Jesus' lips. They were said to his disciples to comfort them as he was about to be crucified and he was preparing them for his execution. But they're recorded by John in his gospel and all who read them are to hear them as both claim and comfort. Which is my slide, if you've got it. Jesus' claim, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And his comfort, you can come to the Father through me. So believe Jesus' claim. I am, that's a loaded couple of words, when Moses asked God back at the burning bush to tell him his name so that he could tell and turn the people who was commissioning him to lead them, God had replied, tell them, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. So Jesus saying, I am anything, and he's already said, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, and now I'm the way, the truth, and the life, is to claim deity, to being God of Moses, their ancestor. I am. And then he says, thee, not a way among many, the truth, not one truth among many, and the life, not one life among many, but exclusively the way, the truth, and the life. The use of the definite article, the, is an exclusive claim. If you ask me if something I have in my possession is the original, and I say it is the one, the original, I am making a very clear claim. It's a very indifferent impression you get if you ask me if I have the original and I say to you it is an original. Just one of several. Then we're not on the same page. You've asked about the one, and I'm telling you I have an original, implying there are more than one, and I've just got one of them. Jesus allows no room for that. He claims to be the way. The same goes for the truth and the life. Are you telling the truth? It's not a hard question to understand. To reply, I'm telling a truth, is to deny that I am telling the truth. The truth is singular. There aren't many truths that can be equally valid and on a level with each other. In maths, 
I thought of coming up with a clever equation, but I couldn't. So 2 plus 2 equals 4. That is the truth. To claim 2 plus 2 equals 5, unless you're a very clever mathematician with a weird background that I don't have, to claim that is also true is actually a lie. Jesus is claiming to be the one truth. It's not a mathematical claim, but it is a universal claim. If he's right about himself, then other claims to be God or alongside Jesus cannot, by definition, be equally true. They are false. I am the life. That is a majestic and elevated claim to make for himself. What does he mean? Again, the use of the definite article. The life implies that all other claims to life are nothing of the sort. Mindfulness, a way to a calmer life. Exercise, the way to a fitter, healthier life. Wealth, higher life through the possession of material things. None of that. They're not the life he means. Jesus is making an exclusive claim. He's saying that life, real life, true life, eternal life, forgiven ransomed, healed, restored life is to be had exclusively through knowing him. And I'm getting the knowing him from verse 7. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. Jesus is saying that in seeing him, people have seen the father, and in knowing him, people know the father. And he goes on in verse 7, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. They know Jesus and have seen him, and therefore they know and have seen the Father. So when back in verse 6, the second half of his sentence, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the explanation of him being the life. To come to the Father is to have eternal life. The way to eternal life, Jesus claims, is through knowing him. Verse 8, I enjoy this because it's kind of very real. Philip is still scratching his head. Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. And Jesus' point is to make it even clearer. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It could hardly be less ambiguous. If you know Jesus, you know God. There is a new creation that we await where our bodies will be made new and we we will be with the Father there one day. And Jesus claims, I am the way there. I am the truth. And through me there is life. Bold? Yes. Arrogant? Well, that depends on how true his claim was and what purpose his claim serves. Intolerant? Well, yes, in the same way that the answer to what is the square root of 49 being 7 is intolerant of it being 8. 7 is right, and all other answers are ruled out. They may clamor for a voice, and in some places get a hearing and a following, that you might find those who claim 7 by 7 is 49 intolerant, but those sticking to their guns will gently, firmly press on. So believe Jesus' claim. Second, hear Jesus' warning. Second part of John's, of, of verse 6 in John 14. No one comes to the Father except through me. To come to the Father then is to live with him after death. It is 
resurrection to eternal life. And Jesus exclusively, outrageously, and very politically incorrectly says no one comes to the Father except by him. The Messiah comes from his Father's side to live a perfect life among us and then die, taking the punishment for the sin that we deserve on himself. And mission accomplished, rises from the dead, ascended again to his Father's side. It's, it was a wedding conversation. I was sat next to someone who was an RE teacher at a primary school. And she launched into what her curriculum was all about. Um, didn't ask me what I did for a living. <laughs> so when I said, um, so do you present all different religions as the same? She said, yes, they are. Of course they are. We're all just different travelers up the same mountain, aren't we? And I found myself saying, well, I'm, I don't think Jesus thinks so. And I read John 14, verse 6 to her. Surely we need to honestly teach what Jesus says if we're teaching Christianity in our schools and to make out that he's saying something other than an exclusive claim would be to mislead the children. Conversation didn't go very well from there on. But I was trying to just defend Jesus' clear teaching. The door is wide open now to all who would come to the Father to do so by the narrow gate, down the narrow road of faith in Jesus. The offer is broad. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, no matter what nationality, background, faith of your father's personal history, whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. But be warned, the way is narrow and only a few find it. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the father except through me. Have you read Pilgrim's Progress recently? I read a shorter, cheaper children's version quite recently, very fast, and was struck by how many travellers along the road are on this narrow road, or very close to it, but they're keen to take diversions, and none of them have the scroll that they would have got if they'd come through the narrow gate at the start. Think of it this way. If at the final judgment there could be people standing at the Father's side who didn't get there through faith in Jesus, then the great question needing to be asked is, why did Jesus need to die? Why did God himself need to suffer such agony, physical and spiritual, if there was another way? But Jesus was adamant the Son of Man must be arrested and killed and on the third day rise again. Such was his agony in the garden, the possibility of the Father finding another day, way was part of his prayer. If you will take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. There was no other way that the price could be paid. God's wrath and mercy had to meet in the one man, and sin's penalty be paid for, that all who believe in him might go free. But isn't that shockingly intolerant? What about the millions of adherents to other belief systems? If you'd been brought up in the Middle East, you'd be a Muslim. If you'd been brought up in India, you would be a Hindu. Are you saying, and I, and I guess many of you have been asked this, that everyone else is wrong, that their sincerely held ancient belief systems are for nothing and going nowhere? It is the question any sincere person should be asking. And when pointed to Jesus' words and asked to weigh what Jesus said, and they read Jesus' exclusive statement about no one coming to the Father except through him, then they will have to come to terms with the majority view that all religions are worshipping God 
the same God, and they're just different ways up the same mountain as being utterly defunct. They aren't. The sincere person following up that thought will then want to say on what grounds and with what evidence do the different religions make their claims? Does Islam and Hinduism and even scientific materialism make its claims justifiably? Does what Jesus and what all these other things teach in word and by life stack up? Does what Jesus says about the way the world works and the way it might be saved make any sense? That's the next question we must press people to ask if they ask us that hard question. To go down those trails is to be heading towards the little wicket gate, which is the entrance to the narrow way. So is Christianity intolerant, arrogant, and bigoted? Some people claiming to be Christians will, I am sad to say, display all those characteristics. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the one to whom the question needs to be directed. Our argument, if we have one, is with him. Him who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So, these are my takeaway points from this study this week. I wonder if they'll be yours. I will endeavour to be a person who listens carefully to everything someone else says about what they believe. I will seek to find out why they believe those things. And I hope, out of respect for each other's human dignity, they will endeavour to find out the same from me. When I explain to them about being convinced that the life, death and resurrection of Jesus really happened, I will urge them to look at the evidence for themselves, read a gospel, perhaps talk it over with me. When I explain more importantly that I am personally known, loved and forgiven by God through faith in Jesus Christ, I will long for and be praying for them to hear the invitation Jesus makes to all who are weary and heavy laden that they will come to him for rest that he will open their eyes to see wonderful things out of his word. When I do my job in the week, when I see them at the weekend, I will endeavour to be the best worker, not lying, stealing, cheating, or exaggerating my ways of success. I'll be the good friend, trustworthy neighbour, not betraying a confidence or forgetting to pay back a loan. Why? Not because I'm a good person, but because I'm an ambassador for the most faithful friend and self-sacrificial saviour. Christ died for me that I might live for him. Will I stand up for Christ, the only saviour of the world? Well, I pray in the strength that he gives me, I will, to the exclusion of all others. Will I claim any credit for the rescue I have received? By no means. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. No, it's all of him, and I will sing his praises loud and clear, that if it had been any of me, I would have mucked it up. Will I sound off as someone looking down my nose at other people who believe different things? No. It is precisely those who know that they've done nothing to deserve it, whom Christ raises up and opens their eyes. So I'll be longing for and working for and praying for my friends and family to grasp how wide and deep and long is the love of Christ. I may sound one track and narrow. But if you've been led along a narrow one track way and you know it does reach its destination and if you know the one who led you there paid his life to make that bridge possible 
you won't go looking for any other crossing or want to take anyone anywhere else. Will I be able to dialogue with those who hold sincere but differing views? I pray so. If we will dialogue and debate in a spirit of respectful hope, we will know each other better. We may come to disagree, but I'm convinced Christ will be honoured as we are unashamed to make his exclusive claims clear. Will I take to arms if people aren't persuaded? Of course not. Jesus Christ never did. He turned the other cheek. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and by his trusting obedience he gave up his life as a ransom for many. My life will be no ransom, but I pray if asked to lay it down through a jail sentence for holding a popular, an unpopular conviction in 21st century Britain, or worse, like many Christians martyred for confessing simply that Jesus is Lord, I will only be following in their and my Saviour's footsteps. Will I be prepared to suffer for what I believe, face ridicule for such narrow views, be labelled a bigot by those who don't care to engage with someone who owns Christ as Lord, be considered naive and foolish for holding to the Bible as the word of God that reveals the Son of God to us? I pray I will, and it is my hope that you will too. Let me pray. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for introducing us to your Son, that we might know you as well. Thank you for the burden of sin that we have been relieved of at the cross. Thank you for the guarantee of a welcome to be with you in your many-mansioned house, many-roomed house, one day. May the prospect of that, looking forward, and the thought of Christ's sacrifice for us in retrospect, spur us on to live lives to your praise and glory, even when it's uncomfortable in conversation with those who don't understand yet. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen.